Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Estet. Estet Managed Services lowers client e-discovery spend, improving security and control over data. Estet makes your practice more powerful and profitable. See more at e-stet.com. My name is Jeff Frost, the Director of Client Development at Bondurant Mixon and Elmore. The opinions that I am going to share today are my own and not my firm's. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is responsible for directing his firm's business and professional development activities, including structuring and pricing alternative fee arrangements and managing the firm's corporate recoveries program. The Director of Client Development at Bondurant, Mixon & Elmore, Jeff Frost, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you as a guest in our program, Jeff. Let's jump into our questions. I'm excited to talk to you about your experience in working with your firm on business development. What has made you successful at business development? What personal strengths or habits have you employed to ensure your success? Yeah, I never got into this uh, with the intention of being a salesperson. I was a graphic designer originally when I started in law firm marketing and business development. When I started here at Bondurant around 10 years ago, I saw that there was a need for someone to really get out and, and, and interact with the public. And I think I'm just a good storyteller and people generally like me and it sounds pretentious to say, but I think that's really helped me. Most of my friends are now clients and potential clients and new business contacts. And so I, I think just my ability to relate to people and make friends has really helped me in my career. Fantastic. And we hear that is a way that professionals grow their business. Their friends hear about what's going on in your work life or really just see you as a reputable person. And then they say, hey, you should do business with this person or let me introduce you to this other person. That said, you know, what kind of stories would you tell in an environment that might lead to business? Either a project you've worked on that you tend to talk about with excitement, which could lead to that discussion? That's a great question because that's something that I've really worked on here at Bondurant. And just for context, I started here 10 years ago. I'm the only marketing slash business development person that's ever worked for this firm. The firm's been around for 40 years and we are a high stakes litigation boutique in Atlanta, Georgia. We have 29 lawyers. We do a f even mix of plaintiffs and defense work, but all business related and figuring out how to tell stories around what we do and, and have them be compelling was something I worked very much on and have honed over the years. I recall taking one of my partners to a breakfast with a potential ref referral source in the first six months I worked here. And the potential referral source said, what do I call you for? What do I send you? And the partner said, well, you can send me anything. I can do any commercial litigation. And the referral source looked at him and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. The, the types of stories that we've worked on are ones that speak to the high level, the complexity, the creativity of my lawyers and what we do, and that it, it isn't about being a plaintiff or being a defendant. It's about being a really good lawyer. And I'll share one of those stories. One of the most interesting cases we had was in 2003, 
there was a Texas car dealer named David McDavid who had negotiated a deal to buy the Atlanta Hawks and the Atlanta Thrashers from Turner. And the day before he was going to sign the deal, they told him the deal was off and they sold the team not long after that to folks that were really close to Turner. And the problem that McDavid had was they had never signed the deal. And so he hired us on a full contingency fee arrangement to sue for breach of an oral contract, which is a very complicated case and a very difficult claim to prove. And so after six years of litigation, an eight-week jury trial, multiple appeals, we won him $281 million for breach of an oral contract. That, that is a case that was described to me by many folks in, in the legal field as unwinnable, especially people around Georgia. They all know that story about that deal gone bad, but they don't all know that, one, there was a lawsuit and that was successful, and two, that, that, that Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore was the ones who handled that case. And I'm assuming that was because of intent. I have to have one sort of set of talking points when I'm talking to business people, because a lot of them wouldn't ask a question like that. They may go down a, a different door. But then also, I think this is really important for a business development person who's not a lawyer to know the answer to that question. Because when I'm talking to lawyers, when I'm talking to the chief litigation officer of a big company, they're going to ask questions about the law. I think that's something that people in my position in other firms should take upon themselves to learn more law. And we're not giving legal advice, but we should understand what it is our folks do at a deeper level. To your question, yeah, there were major intent issues. And in fact, there are law school classes now that use the McDavid case and the letter of intent issue in that case in the curriculum. What a great example. And what I'm hearing is success stories, stories of the cases that your firm has worked on and the results are part of your growth strategy. Would that be an accurate statement? If so, do you have those written up? Is there something that especially new partners or lateral partners that are coming in can really study so that they can represent the firm by having those examples, having those stories? The first part of that, and this is a challenge in our model, is that a lot of our more interesting cases we can't talk about. They're confidential, and, and we recently won four racketeering cases that were very complicated. It was a major win. The case had been talked about in Forbes and Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. We couldn't say anything about it afterwards. That's a challenge in our model of, is always knowing you know, which cases we can talk about. And then also, you know, usually the plaintiff's cases you're allowed to talk about more than the defense cases. That can lead to, to a narrative in the marketplace that, that we're a plaintiff's firm. When we can talk about our defense cases, we always feel it's really important that we do that. As far as how we memorialize those, we capture them on the website. As far as I'm concerned, I, I go to lunch with the partners and I talk to them about their cases and I ask them all sorts of detailed questions about why did we do this and why did this happen and why were we successful on this one and, and not on this one. I just have my own mental database of the cases we have. As far as getting the other lawyers to know how to sell the firm, 
that same way. They all have their own cases. And, you know, I try to talk to them about some of these other ones. And especially with the associates, I've, I'll sit down and we'll talk through some of these cases. We don't hire laterally. All of our lawyers started at Bondurant right out of law school. Well, most of them clerked and then they come here. We don't hire laterally. So I, I don't have that issue. The folks coming up, especially the ones who weren't here during the McDavid case, doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to explain that case to folks that they're meeting with, trying to network with. Sure. So I would imagine that because of the work that you do do and the fact that it is complex litigation, that there are a lot of ebbs and flows in the number of cases that are going on at any time. Probably not a lot of repeat cases. I don't know that. Maybe there are. How do you keep the flow of cases coming at the right pace? Do you have a strategy for that? That's a great question. And that's the nature of the beast with a litigation firm. We don't have other practice areas that are more steady. My lawyers always seem to either be drinking from the fire hose or a couple cases settle or go dormant. They're like, okay, where's the next one? I think that's a constant issue for most litigators, even in full service firms. I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect amount of work. The litigation can get crazy. The more important thing though, is while they're drinking from the fire hose and some of our cases, they can last three, four, five years of intense work. When you're having a complicated dispute over billions of dollars with really complicated laws, they can be all consuming. So for those lawyers who are immersed in that case, how are they maintaining their relationships, being prepared for the next case when that one ends? When I started here, I came from an Amlaw 200 firm where I was really more of a behind the scenes marketing person, you know, helping with RFPs and the website and planning events and things like that. When I started here, I was trying to do those things and, and say, okay, let's fill out a business plan and who are you going to lunch with and you know, who do we need to know? And it was such a slow process because they get busy and they disappear for it could be years. They're just not really available. And you want folks to be able to have a life too. You're immersed in a major piece of litigation and you have a choice, go home and see my family or go to this cocktail event. Well, you want them to be able to go home and see their family. So my role has really evolved here in that I'm out meeting people. I have a list that has all the companies that could potentially hire us. The ones we're suing, I don't need to worry about. I know the ones we're already representing. The main part of that list are the folks that we don't sue, we don't represent. They are hiring our competitors. Who do I need to know there? And what type of messaging do we need to get across to them? And so I can do that part of it and meet those people, build the relationship wait for the right opportunity to bring my lawyers in. And I just think it, that model is not one that most law firms have. I, I feel like the model for most law firms in terms of business development is, is to spend a lot of money on trying to teach the lawyers how to be salespeople. My role has, I think, proven is that if you teach the salesperson enough law and have them unencumbered by hourly billing or any sort of legal work. You know, I don't have to do legal work. I can serve as an extension of my lawyers and I can confidently and competently represent them in the marketplace. And so instead of going to my lawyers and saying, I need you to go to this cocktail event and tell me who you met, maybe they'll send us work someday. When I go to them, I say, okay, we're going to lunch with 
this person who's the head of litigation of this company to talk about this opportunity. And it cuts out a lot of the busy work for the lawyers. I honestly don't know why more firms haven't adopted that model. It seems to work well. Great points. And first off, I have to say what we hear from litigators, even in large firms, I interviewed a partner that focuses on large class action suits. And he said the same thing, you know, five-year class action cases, totally consuming. And because he's an experienced lawyer, he kept working on other things because he didn't want his funnel to dry up. What if this goes away? What if it settles? He's always very overwhelmed with work, which he feels blessed to have instead of the the opposite. But it it can be very much a weight to be able to say, okay, I want to manage the fact that I've got a lot of work, but I've got to keep looking. And I think a lot of these lawyers are trained that way because they just feel like it's absolutely necessary. So I think that idea of, can you offload some of that responsibility or at least that initial responsibility to someone else. And I can tell you, Jeff, we hear that from lawyers that we talk to. Can't you sell it for us? Can't your firm sell it for us? Can't you go out and do this and bring the leads to our firm, which I think is something to consider and talk about. To your point, we aren't hearing that. Definitely not. And the majority of the folks that we're talking to, we're hearing the lawyers are still doing business development. And now a word from our episode sponsor. For 10 years, Eastead has helped clients save money by streamlining e-discovery and document review processes. See why AM100 firms, Fortune 500 companies, and boutique firms love Eastead's simple pricing and customer service-centered approach on matters from IP to class actions to internal investigations. See more at e-stet.com. So at my previous law firm, I was having a conversation with the partner I reported to, and I was explaining to him that they were asking me to put together a website and all these marketing materials and and plan all these events and help with strategy on how to market the firm, but they weren't telling me anything about our business or about what they do. You know, They wouldn't tell me who our best clients were, what our most profitable engagements were. What I said, could you imagine if you had a client who asked you for legal advice and gave you half of the information, then you gave your legal advice and they said, no, you're wrong because you didn't think of these other things. And you say, well, you didn't tell me those. And he looked at me and he said, so it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy is we don't trust that you know how to sell us, but then we don't teach you. So you don't know how to sell us. So when I came to Bondurant, one of the things I said when I was interviewing is that there couldn't be any secrets. I needed to know what's going on with the business, really needed to understand how we're successful, because that's going to inform everything I do. And to their credit, they've been completely open. That is part of that is critical. I think that a lot of lawyers have this false impression that sales is some slimy thing. That's like a used car salesman trying to trick people. Nothing I'm doing is a trick. You know, I'm trying to identify clients that I think we can provide really good services to more efficiently, less costly. We are solving a problem. And if I'm going in and I'm helping them solve a problem, I don't feel slimy. I feel good about what I do. I would think that a lot of the clients we work with would agree with that. They like having someone that is coming at it from a business perspective. And I think part of this too, I've been mentioning this at some of my speaking engagements at conferences, the clients really need to help push this too. A lot of clients rightfully are frustrated 
with the law firms and their inability to deliver what they call client services. Bring someone like me in. There are really talented people in the legal marketing space. Allow me to be part of the relationship because I don't care about origination credit. I don't care about my fee credits or anything like that. All I care about is making sure my clients are satisfied and that we're doing the best job we can for them. I hope that things will continue to move in that direction. Great point. And first off, I applaud your firm for recognizing your current firm that they have to share with you what's going on at the firm so that you can properly represent them in the market. And then the other thing I would say is you've obviously had some success. You wouldn't be there 10 years in helping your firm to grow. And that is an eye-opener for many. And I think they have to trust that you can come in and assist them with their business development. But once you have success, I think that's a huge factor. And of course, to your last point, what we're seeing out in the legal ecosystem is the fact that most of these firms now are made up of many other professionals and they're taking on strong parts of the business. And part of what you were saying around the value point, I know that you're a huge supporter of AFAs. You obviously have taken that on for your firm. In many of your marketing pieces, it says that you are open to other fee arrangements and pricing arrangements that work for your clients. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you've impacted that and what your firm is doing and possibly even share with us a success story where you were able to acquire a piece of business because there was an AFA or some kind of alternative fee arrangement that looks different than the billable hour? Absolutely. So probably around six months after I started at Bondurant, one of the partners sent me an article about alternative fee arrangements. And I read it. It struck me that that was going to be very important for a firm like Bondurant. From a business perspective, we have more partners than associates. We have all full equity partners. So we are an inversely leveraged law firm. So we don't have a bunch of people to put on cases. When we are billing by the hour, you're limited by how many people and how much time they have. I thought that alternative fees would be a much better way for us to approach clients because it's really hard for any client to make a determination on overall price when hiring a firm by the hour. They might look at one lawyer and say, you're $600 an hour and this other lawyer over here is $600 an hour and just assume that that's going to be the same overall price when it almost never is. The kind of litigation you're doing, I can't imagine that they wouldn't want to look at something that was less of an open checkbook. Exactly. And so I made it a objective of mine to learn everything I possibly could about alternative fee arrangements. I read every article, every white paper. I attended conferences. I had many discussions about it. I found every example of an engagement letter I could find online. I've gotten to the point where local ACC chapter and other general counsel organizations have asked me to come give CLE presentations on alternative fee arrangements. I've made myself an expert in that area. That's something that's really helped me when meeting with potential clients is that you know I'm able to help them understand that issue and, and how to approach it. An example of a, a success story is we were pitching for a antitrust lawsuit where there was a company that had built a factory to to make this pellet that they need and spent $20 million or so to build this factory. Turns out that right before they were about to flip the switch and start producing, somebody found a non-compete that they weren't allowed to make these pellets for 10 years. We were 
asked, along with two very large law firms, to give a proposal. And our proposal was that we go on the offensive and say that that non-compete is unenforceable because it would create a monopoly for the other company. And the client was interested um, but they weren't sure about that strategy. The other thing was they needed to do it fast. And so we offered them a fee arrangement where we got a dramatically reduced hourly rate, but we got a bonus if we were able to get an injunction that they were they would be able to start making these pellets right away. And then if we were able to get the case knocked out in six months, we got 3x whatever the holdback was in our hourly rates if it was... 12 months, we got 2x. Anything after 12 months, we would just been made whole. If we lost the case, we would have got nothing. And they liked us having skin in the game and that we were that confident in our strategy that we were willing to tie our compensation to it. I don't know if we would have won that business without the alternative fee arrangement. My theory is we would not have. When you have a lawyer that's standing in front of you saying, I'm so confident in my ability that I'm willing to put my profit at risk based on this strategy, I think that's very compelling. I would love to do more alternative fee arrangements. We try to offer them in every engagement. There's a lot of concern still. I think we're all sort of evolving and hopefully can get to a point where we, we stop looking at what it would have cost hourly as a metric. There's always that comparison. It's interesting. We hear from the client side too, because the clients, as I'm talking to general counsel, they're saying, well, we're not sure that we're making out when there's an AFA or we're even getting a fair shake. We don't know. So there is that tendency to go back and say, well, what would it have cost? That said, you had started about 10 years ago, so 2007 with your firm. This was six months later that the, the partner handed you the article on alternative fee arrangements. Obviously, since then, a, a lot has happened, but that was two 2008, fall of 2008, even though AFAs were talked about prior, that's when they started to get a little bit more of a runway out there. So have you had a situation where it didn't work in your firm's favor? And was there a lesson learned around an AFA that just didn't work out well for possibly even the client and for your firm? Well, I'll give you one that definitely didn't work out for the firm. And and this was a a lesson learned. What it was is there was a case that we were asked to come in on. It was a $900 million trade secrets claim with a $1.1 billion counterclaim. The firm that was working on the case was billing a million dollars a month. We said we can do that case for $200,000 a month. No problem. And what we did, though, is we entered into a capped hourly arrangement. And what happened is the first month when we were getting up to speed on this massive lawsuit, we invested about $400,000 in time into it. After that, we never even came close to the $200,000. But when you're capped hourly, you don't get any of the benefit of that efficiency. If you bill 120, you get 120. If you bill 240, you, you get 200. You're not making up for those months where you may have been go a little bit over. So I, I just think we would have been much better off just doing a, a flat 200,000 rather than a capped hourly. I've had a recent conversation with a guest and we talked about when we have an arrangement like this in place with a client and when it becomes very evident that it's not going to work for the firm, or it's going to basically not be beneficial. Possibly there is something that the client didn't raise or something the firm didn't realize. I mean, did you have a conversation? Did you feel like you could go back to the client and say, oh, you know, we made an error. This is really going to 
cause issue with our firm? Not in that case. That was on us. We agreed to that deal in good faith and it didn't change how we litigated and we, we got them a really good result, got the case settled within a few months. It was just one of those things. Most law firms operate on a pretty sizable profit margin. And so you can be wrong a little bit on some of those. You'd rather not be. To your point, I think a larger point of can you go back and ask, I think that's, especially if something does dramatically change, I think that's really important. And that goes down to the trust factor and the and the strength of the relationship. The way I've always viewed these is an alternative fee arrangement should not be one side trying to get one over on the other side. And they should not be viewed in singular instances of we're going to do this one deal together and that's it. We may do really well on some and not as well on others. For instance, if we look at a case and we say, okay, we think this case is going to last two years and there's going to be discovery and we like the case and we think it's going to be a winner and we'll get a 10% cut of whatever we win for you and we'll reduce our rates or do a flat fee with a holdback. And then the case settles a month later, we're going to be reasonable. We're not going to say, you owe us 5 million bucks. We wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be good for the relationship. And I think for these to flourish, both sides need to accept that there may be instances where when we first looked at this, it was one set of circumstances and now it's not. But to come at that in good faith, it just can't be the, I'm trying to win one over. And so the other side saying, well, I'm going to try to win one over first. That's not going to help the relationship in any way. Right. It doesn't help the legal work either. I think especially for big litigation, you want your lawyers to be passionately engaged and you want them to feel like they're valued. And when you say, hey, I want you to handle this big case, but I want you to be on frozen rates from five years ago with a 15% discount and that lawyer's looking at other work they could be doing, it's hard to stay motivated. And I, I, I really think the insurance defense world has proven what a problem this is, which is, yes, because you have a huge book of business to send out, you can squeeze your firms, but that doesn't mean you're going to get good work. And you're certainly not going to get the best lawyers working on these cases. You might be able to save $50,000 on the fees by getting a rate discount, but if then you go and lose $50 million, it wipes it all out. And so what what I've always been a proponent of, the, the model that I think most clients should want, especially in big litigation, is a fee arrangement where the best lawyers are compensated or have the opportunity to be compensated more than their hourly rate if they do a really good job efficiently. If you're able to get a result efficiently and make a little bit more than you would have hourly, that's great because then those lawyers are engaged. Most lawyers want to win every case. We wouldn't have the issues we have in the industry if we weren't so motivated by hourly billing. This is an interesting point. I wrote down earlier, it says having an AFA, having some kind of skin in the game for the client wouldn't change how the lawyers would litigate the case. It doesn't change how you do business. You know, they're going to do the best job they can. They're going to make decisions that are strong and appropriate for the client. But I, I think you mentioned something else that is critical. Obviously, if they're being asked to do it on a capped hourly rate, if they know that the business side of the opportunity is not playing in favor 
of them possibly doing their best work, that they probably won't have that passion to continue to work at the same level, at the same amount. It's an interesting point because we hear this a lot from litigators. They don't want the AFA because they feel like they can't do their best work. The point you just made, there has to be a comparable incentive to actually represent the client well, and then there has to be some extra if, of course, they're successful. They just have to have the opportunity to do better by being efficient and getting great results. A larger issue with this is the appropriate deployment of resources on these cases. You should want the the high-powered lawyers at Bondron or any other firm that you hire to say, this bucket of work over here, we can hire contract lawyers to do it. Or there's this technology out here that can make us help us get through this so much faster and with better results. Under a straight hourly arrangement, there's not a lot of incentive for firms to do that. There's a lot of really innovative software out there in the legal marketplace right now. And I have a, a lot of friends, mostly who are former lawyers, who are now trying to sell this innovative software. And for years, they would tell me how frustrated they were trying to get law firms to buy in. What I explained to them is I said, well, think about what your sales proposition is. You're saying, I want you to pay me money so that I can sell you software that's going to make you less money because it's going to make you more efficient. That's a very hard sell. You know, what a lot of them have done is they've, they've started going to the clients. A law firm that is not being compensated by the hour who is getting more margin, it's not overall more money, it's a higher margin by being efficient and investing in technology and hiring contract lawyers as needed, but also having to maintain the integrity of, of the result. If you have that success component, the lawyers, if they're farming everything out and then they lose, well, they're, they're not going to get their success bonus. And so it's the combination of having that flat fee with a bonus that gets everybody on the same team. A lot of what I've come to on this is informed by the fact that, that Bondurant, we do annually 30 to 40% of our time is spent on full contingency cases. So we are in that same position all the time where on a contingency case, you don't want to pour a bunch of hours into it and a bunch of bodies if you don't need to. You have to win though, because you're going to get nothing if you lose. But if we can win more efficiently, the end number doesn't change. Our margin changes. And so we have the incentive to go out and invest in these technologies and to bring in contract lawyers as needed and not mark them up. We're trying to negotiate the best deal we can with these vendors. Yeah, I spoke at the clock conference on this. That should be the model that corporations should aspire to in their big litigation is figure out a way to create that contingency pressure for the law firm because then they will change their behavior. And I'm glad you brought up CLOCK. So CLOCK, for our listeners, we've talked about it's the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium. And it really is legal operations, team members, leaders in corporations of all size, very large, a lot of tech companies coming together to talk about how they can better manage and really drive efficiency through the use of technology, through the use of legal services providers, as well as better relationship building with their law firms, including stronger project management and where legal purchasing fits into that into that mix. I do hear from the clock members we talk to that there really is this need for the tech companies that are providing these solutions, the legal services companies that are 
um, offering efficient outsourcing and the law firms to work together with the clients to come up with a better way, a better way to make sure that we're all operating efficiently. Technology is a huge component of that. When you said that you're mostly equity partners at your firm, you grow your lawyers organically. So you have associates because of course those will likely be your next partners, but you must be using outsourcing technology in a very efficient way. I can't imagine you'd be able to operate in that structure without it. The benefit of having lawyers who've done nothing but litigation their whole career, we usually staff our cases with at most two or three lawyers. With what's available in the marketplace in terms of alternative service providers and the technology, you don't need more than two or three lawyers on most cases. And in fact, we feel like because our partners do so much of the work that they know the case intimately. And so when we see a team of 20 or 30 lawyers on the other side of a case, the likelihood of senior lawyers in court have been in the trenches day to day, they're probably not. And so our lawyers are intimately involved in, in the case at every step of the way. It helps them win cases. Yeah, in order to operate as an inversely leveraged law firm who does a lot of contingency work, certainly we have to rely on, as Clock calls it, the legal ecosystem and all those folks that if they can help us win a case more efficiently, we're all for it. And honestly, again, that's what clients should want all law firms to aspire to. Out of either what you've seen or what you've employed at your firm, Is there a piece of technology, a legal services partner that's doing something that is innovative, whether you use them or not, or even a class of technology? You know, what are you seeing out there that you believe is innovative and will have an impact on this industry? Well, I think that the predictive coding software has the opportunity to really transform litigation. It's not perfect, but it's getting better. It's already better than, you know, having 50 people go through fantasy football emails looking for one responsive email in a batch of 200,000. You can filter those out. That already saves the client a ton of time that really is not valuable time. The way it benefits a firm like ours is on a large plaintiff side contingency case, especially ones where we're up against a large financial institution. The playbook in the past has been, we're going to bury this firm in paper. We're going to make it so expensive to litigate this case that they're going to either give up or they're going to want to settle on the cheap. What predictive coding technology does, it allows us to say, bring it on. We'll dump it right into the system. It's going to take us a couple days to get through that because you know we already have all the proper filters in place and we know what responsive documents are. It just allows us to more effectively weather that strategy. It's interesting. We're hearing so many different avenues, looking at judges and juries, who was on the jury and the makeup of the jury and what the case was, and they're able to predict outcomes. It's quite amazing and cost savings related to that. Jeff, thank you. We're getting to the end of our time together. Absolutely appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Well, I always like to evangelize for my legal marketing brethren. We are an important part of the legal industry. And I've been doing this for 17 years. I don't feel like a non-lawyer, non-anything. Now, I'm a highly skilled member of my firm and I provide a valuable service. And I think that we are starting to turn a corner on that where 
non-lawyers are being more appreciated in firms, and I think it's a good thing, and I just hope that it continues. I think we have a lot to offer. I joke with my lawyers. There are very few lawyers who went to law school so that they could be salespeople. I want my lawyers to be happy. There's a lot of unhappiness in this profession, and I think a lot of it is tied around the pressure to bring in work and to be a rainmaker. If we have lawyers that just really like practicing law, let's let them do that and leave a lot of the business stuff to people who like to do the business side of it, which is what I like to do. I love talking about alternative fee arrangements. I love writing engagements letters for alternative fee arrangements and setting pricing and thinking about technology. You know, I like doing that. And so let me do that and you go write the greatest brief ever. (laughs) Fantastic. First off, I want to applaud you for using the sales words because most of the folks that we have on that are not lawyers will never use that word. They use business development. So thank you for using it because it's exactly what it is and it's not a bad word right? It's actually what makes most of these businesses run, whether they're a law firm or any other firm. We have to have clients, we have to have revenue. So terrific. And really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with our listeners. Jeff, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Lovefoot. Thanks, Nicole. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.